Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Idle Australians with James and Asha. Let's get the show going, boys. Hello, Asha Ginsberg. Hello, mate. Sorry I haven't sorted out the theme song yet. I feel a bit laxed. Ah, that's right. It's growing on me. Uh, <laughs> how are you feeling? Actually, I'm a bit sore. I'm, I'm a bit sore. I didn't know that one could get sore from commuting. I've been riding the motorbike a lot. My shins really hurt from braking and changing gears. So, yeah. As far as things that hurt after riding a motorcycle, I'm pretty, you know, that's okay because it's a pretty dangerous thing to do. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there are worst injuries to have oh, yeah. riding a motorcycle. I've got an ouchy shin. My shins are ouchy. <laughs> you know, the last few weeks we've been doing some great moments in Australian history, some in Australian culture, and it made me think about a, a song that there's not an Australian alive today under the age of probably 60 who don't know the words to K-San. Uh, yeah, K-San. It, it's even bigger than K-San, would you imagine? These days from Powderfinger. These days, no, not nothing like no, no, even bigger than Daryl Braithwaite's horses. No, there is no song bigger than Daryl Braithwaite's horses. Of course, there is. Um, shall I play you the first? I don't even have to play you a chord, all I have to do is play you some hand claps. I'm ready. Okay, I know what we're talking about now. That is clearly the most powerful of all power ballads. I don't think there's a more powerful power ballad that's ever been recorded. It's right up there. It's as big as it gets. As far as as an Australian, you're the voice, John Farnham. That's the reason a a generation of children learned to play the bagpipes. I don't know if that's entirely true. I don't see a lot of Aussie kids kicking around playing the old pipes, but it should be compulsory. I had to learn the recorder at school. You probably did as well. I did. What sort of nation that has You're the Voice, Under a Milky Way, and, of course, ACDC. Long way to the top. All with bagpipes. Doesn't teach their kids the bagpipes. It's a failure of the education system in a great nation. 100%. It should be mandatory. (laughs) Maths, phonics, bagpipes. MPB. (laughs) And you hear complaints that... You know, we're letting our kids down in the education system. Well, I tell you what, we are. Yeah. Every step of the way. Every child that graduates that doesn't know how to play the bagpipes in this country, 
<laughs> makes a mockery of you know who we are as a nation. How do how how did this song come back? I mean, I know it's one of those ubiquitous songs. It's kind of it's all around us all the time. How did this come back across your the desk of your brain? How did how did this come back? I think you know as we started to do this podcast, I started to make a list of things that I've always wondered about Australian culture and about history and about forgotten people and where are they now? And there's a couple of moments that always spring to mind, but one in particular when it comes to You're the Voice. One is I'm at the World Cup in Germany. Australia hasn't qualified for the Football World Cup in over 30 years, so I'm a big football fan. I thought I'd go over there. So 2006? Went and watched 2006, watched some games, and now Australia are in a precarious position. They have to get out of the group phase. They've never done that in World Cup history. All they have to do is beat or tie with Croatia, and they managed to do that. And at the final whistle... The whole stadium, well, the Australian contingent at least, is in raptures. They are ecstatic. And over the PA loudspeaker system, in a stadium in Stuttgart, on the other side of the world, you hear this. It rings out like a bell and 30,000 Australians away from home Sing You're the Voice in unison. And it's such a powerful moment and it's a, a realisation that this song means as much to Australians in many ways as the national anthem, you know. Complete strangers, arm in arm, belting it out. It was a really gorgeous moment. And the other moment that was quite powerful but in a different way, in, in, in a way that was very much more personal and happened on my own, was many years later I'm travelling. I happen to be in Greece and I'm in the island of Santorini and I've been away for a bit. That day I'm not feeling too crash hot, probably a little bit homesick, a little bit lonely, and I'm in a tiny, tiny delicatessen off a dirt road in Santorini. And as I'm at the counter, the elderly Greek man serving me has a little, must be a 20, 30-year-old stereo behind him playing the radio station, whatever it was in Greek, and then comes on the radio at a moment where I wasn't feeling amazing, you're the voice, John Farnham. But it wasn't John Farnham. It was some bloke singing you're the voice in Greek, a Greek cover of the Australian National Anthem. And I've always thought about that. How did that happen? How did this touchstone of musical history end up on the island of Santorini 30 years later? I, I can't even imagine because you'd be there at the at the counter. You don't know much Greek, if any. You're trying to figure out, what do I want? I'm feeling a bit homesick. Oh, how much goat cheese can I have or olives? I don't know. You're at a deli trying to figure something out. And then you hear this familiar melody. You're like, oh, tune. Hang on. I'm in Greece. Hang on. That's not Farnham. Hang on. Where's the bagpipes? Mm-hmm. You hear this familiarity, but it's in Greek. And did your, was your brain just kind of clashing with trying to figure out what was going on? I think there was a moment there where I thought, was, that, was, was, that, was your the voice that big that it reached even small pockets of Greece? Was that song such a global phenomenon that artists all over the world are recording it? 
And I've always wanted to know that. So today I thought we'd do a deep dive into You're the Voice, into the the checkered history, find out exactly how it became the behemoth that it did, and with any luck, discover how the hell it ended up in the hands of a Greek pop star all those years later. Jim, I think the first place to start would be at the top of the pile here in Australia when it comes to that song, and that would be a man by the name of Ross Fraser. Now, Ross Fraser's name may not be familiar to many people, but he is the man who produced the album Whispering Jack. He's probably the one that said, you know what we need? Fucking bagpipes. (laughs) It would have been Ross Fraser. Now, Ross has gone on to be an A&R guy, um, which is artist and repertoire, which is basically like if you and I formed a band, like, hey, you guys have got a good look. I like what's going on. He's the guy that would help us kind of craft the product. You think you got a hit on this record? I think we need a hit. Yeah, yeah, boys, we need a hit. I like where you're going. Yeah. But we need a radio hit here. And I am incredibly happy, Jimmy, to say that Mr. Ross Fraser is actually joining us. Ross Fraser, we are so honoured to have you on the show. Chucks. You're the man that produced Whispering Jack, the album, aren't you? Yes. I was very lucky to do that and have that. You know, experience and, uh, yeah, just lucked into it, really. When John Farnham came to you and said, look, we're going to put a record together, how did the song, how did You're the Voice come to be something that John Farnham sang? First of all, You're the Voice was the last song that we had, that we got. We'd started the album without having You're the Voice on it. And we're in John's house in the suburbs, in his garage, sort of doing pre-production. Well, first of all, we started trying to find songs. So I'd go out every second day to John's place and we just had a bunch of songs that had been sent to us and we'd be going through them and, nah, none of these are any good. No, that's not a bad song, you know. We, I think we had nine songs or eight songs and we thought, well, we could probably start with this, you know, it's pretty good. And then right at the last second, that song, Your the Voice, uh, came to us and John heard it and just went, Holy shit. And you know the next thing he said? It needs bagpipes. And he was right. (laughs) This is how it went. What's your reaction when John says it needs bagpipes? Because I don't imagine that's a sentence that you get given that often as a suggestion, as a producer. Only time ever in my life and I'm going, what the hell is he doing? Eventually I came around and I thought, well, yeah, look, that's, that's pretty good. It did work. I've got to say, it's a big part of the song. As a producer, you're like, okay, great, John, that's a good idea. And then you're like, how do I get fucking bagpipes? It's two o'clock on a Thursday. What am yeah. I going to, like, where do you start? Yeah, well, you go to the local bagpipe camp and say, would you blokes like to do this? Now, the thing with bagpipes is they're not in tune to what we hear. We recorded them and then we had to move them down. Now, in those days, that was really hard to do, to change the pitch of something. Today, it's a button. Just I can just change that. But back then that was really hard. And luckily, Hershey had a David Hirschfelder, Fairlight, one of the few Fairlights in Australia at that time. He found a way through the Fairlight to pull the bagpipes down into tune with the rest of the record. I think there were six bagpipers in the studio. It was just a buzz. It was great. I think for a lot of our listeners, Ross, they can't imagine a time when John Farnham wasn't a massive 
superstar in terms of having a lot of cultural cachet and being very cool and very well recognised. But around the time of this record, that wasn't really the case, was it? No. I remember when we started recording and I was working with John, you know, I'd be out somewhere and talking to someone and they go, what are you doing? And I'd say, oh, I'm working with John Fine. And they'd just go, oh, yeah, and then walk away. I mean, at that stage <laughs> he didn't have too much cachet. And he was on the point of being becoming a pretty sad, lonely pop singer that was getting older. That's really how it was, and that was pretty rough for him. He sold his house. He was he was renting when we're doing this. You know, it all become pretty hard. So he's got no money. He he doesn't have um, a lot of people who believe in him. And he doesn't have a lot of cool factor, but he, I guess he has a, a cadre of people around him who who still believe in what he's capable of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Glenn's obviously Glenn's always been there for him. You know, Glenn was there when he was 16, you know, and they lived together in a house in, when they were in 18 in St Kilda. Right through everything, Glenn is there, up and down, in or out. He's still there and he's still doing it now, you know. What did you see... This song that John Farnham says, I love that, it needs bagpipes. What did you see this song become that you didn't expect? Well, I didn't expect it to come to anything and none of us really did. I mean, you've got to understand when when we'd finished it, Glenn was starting to play it to people and no one wanted to hear it. No one wanted to, no, don't like that. Every radio station was, no, Johnny Farnham, no, it's not going to work. But Glenn persisted and he got uh, one of the Sydney networks, I can't remember which one it was, Triple M, uh, took, uh, finally thought they'd give it a go. But, but it was really hard for Glenn to get it out there. You know, he just could not get anyone to play it and they didn't want to play it. But he just pushed hard enough for them to get it on air and that's history. It just exploded. Mm. I mean, you would have recorded a lot of hits over the time, and as an A&R rep, that's part of your job is to recognise something that is going to resonate with the public. Did you see in it something that was a little bit special? Did you think that's a hit at any stage early on? Well, I hadn't heard anything like it really. Mm. You know, there were five co-writers and they all came out of England except for one who came out of South Africa. And it came to, I don't really know how it came to Glenn's offices, and I was working out of Glenn's office at the time as well, and he had a, a publisher in the, in, in the office, Doris Tyler. Doris brought it into me and she said, oh, I've had a list of this. I don't know, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but, you know, should John hear it? And I was that day driving out to his house. So I had put it in my car. At this point in time I hadn't heard it. Put it in my car driving to John's place. And I put it on and I played it through and I went, holy shit, what a great song. It was just a great song. And then I played it again <laughs> before I got there. And then I played it to John and it was like, wow, you know, that's a song. Bagpipes. Mm. Yeah, and bagpipes. The greatest form of, uh, of of knowing when a product is successful is when people start to imitate you and that goes for shoes to jeans to jackets to cars. When did you first start to hear that this song started to get taken off and start to get covered uh, overseas? Well, I don't know about covered. I, I mean, overseas, look, obviously it took off in here first and that was the, that's the main thing. It was up and running in Australia and we went through all that with a huge tour that just kept getting bigger and bigger till the end of the year. 
at that point in time, BMG were have take, taken over the label and they liked what they heard and they said, let's try and see what we can do in Europe with John. So we took off on a plane for a three-month junket of going to every radio station, every TV station, every day flying to a different country in Europe, basically. There was this live three-hour music um, show in Germany that only once a year they play and they had everyone in there. We rock up to this TV studio and Thompson Twins are there and Boy George and everyone's on this show. And John, really not known by, at this point in time in, in Germany or in Europe, but they put him on. BMG forced it and said, we want this guy to go. So John does the song, sings it live, the only act on the show singing live. People just went nuts. And then they made him play the fucking thing again before the show finished. <laughs> the next week it was number one in Germany. Fuck yeah. Oh, man. And then it started to spread all over Europe. Went to number one in Sweden. Went to number three in France, I think. It was spreading out. It got pretty big. There were three major players in Sweden at that time, David Bowie, someone else, and John Farnham. Amazing. That, that year, they were the three major artists. It was something else. I mean, it was just crazy. I'd never been any in anything near like that. It was my first trip to Europe. What do you put it down to? Like, it's very hard to pinpoint anything. But what do you put it down to? It, it's 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 a once in a lifetime song, really, to be involved with a track that that lives on like this and becomes part of the 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 nation's identity. Go back and listen to the lyrics and what it's about. Mm. It's no different to what we're doing now. Just listen to those lyrics about guns and about, you know, it's, it's the people have to take this over. It's mm. happening right now, George Floyd. You know? When they knock the wall down in Berlin, they're yeah. playing You're the Voice. Mm. That's how important the song was lyrically and what it meant to people. So I think that's why it's just going to it's going to go on for a long, long, long time. When... Uh, the late and great Michael Gudinski did the, the two shows, MCG and SCG for the bushfires. I was in the SCG with, with John. John hadn't played for a while. He probably hadn't played for a year and a half and he was pretty nervous about it because one of the reasons he was nervous about it, he'd, he'd got a, a phone call a week before from Chris, Chris Martin. Chris had rung him up. And first of all, John didn't even believe it was, was Chris. We found out it was Chris. He said, can we be your backing band for um, this concert? John's like, he rings me, holy shit, Chris Martin wants us to work with, you know, the band. And when they played in Sydney, I don't know whether you saw it or not, but you should seek it out, Chris said, he brought on, he said, and next we want to bring on the King of Australia, John Farn. And the kids went nuts and they all sung it because John thought, what if they don't know, what if they don't like it? Mm. Well, it just worked a treat. The kids just sang it. There's 40,000 kids singing this. Yeah. With Coldplay doing the backing vote. Chris Martin as well calls it, you know, the Australian national anthem in that intro. And as I was talking to Osh at the start of this episode, you don't even need to play a single bar. Coldplay start with those hand claps and the crowd erupts. There, There is just, there is something embedded in it that's inside all of us. Absolutely. Every tour I went to with John, that was the 
thing that happened at the start, you know, when finally here we go at the end and all you hear is, <laughs> that's it. And people go nuts. When he plays that at Sound Relief and there's people, you know, probably as young as 15 all the way through singing every word back to him in full throat, does John realise that, okay, this is truly transcended class, nationality, age, demographic? Yes, but I don't think he sees it that way. But what you're saying is true. He looks at, he'll be looking at it differently than you and I are. But it's basically the same thing, but he comes at it from a different angle. I feel mm. sorry for him because he's like he's the only person in the world that doesn't know what it's like to have your The Voice sung to you by John Farnham. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else knows what that's like, and that's why we go completely nuts when we yeah. hear the hand claps. Yeah. When we see the pipers walking into the arena, we're like, this fucking piper's coming in the side door. You're the voices next. Here we go. You know, we know it's going to happen. Yeah. He's the one. So, of course, he has a different perspective. But when Jimmy started talking about this, a, I was like, yes, it is. A sh- it's a song that transcends generations, but at the same time, part of me is a little sad. Like, oh, fuck it, it's still relevant. Like, it's really relevant. Like, it could come out today and we'd go, yep. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. It's a beautiful sign that the music works and the lyrics work together. Ross, it's incredible to speak with you and to listen to you reflect on on this piece of music. All it is, it's just it's vibrations of air particles coming and touching our ears that make us feel emotions. It's completely bonkers when you think about what it is. Sure. But just the way that it's put together, it ignites something within all of us. It is it just triggers this feeling of what it is to have this Australian experience more than to have been a part of that, mate, must be incredible. And I'm just so grateful that we got a chance to talk to you tonight, Ross. Thanks heaps, man. I'd hate to think that we'd ever lose the song. I think it needs to go on and on. It is not going anywhere, mate. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it's not going, I'll play it at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're right, dude. Like the idea that a, what is a song? It's just vibrations of sound wa- of air. Yeah, that's it's all it vibrating is. air. Yeah, that hits a part of our body that was designed to hunt for prey and be wary of predators. That's what your ears. Do. That's what your ear has been designed, evolutionarily speaking, to yeah. do, to make sure you can find food and you can be aware of something that can be a threat. Yeah. And humans somehow, and this is not a modern phenomenon, like sound and music go back 60, 70,000 years in terms of the, the human story. And so we've managed to turn a part of our body that has developed for survival into something that brings us joy and happiness and sorrow and connection. And I mean, and that is why at its core, music is much more than just sounds. Yeah. How crazy is it that through an organ designed to hunt prey, you can create a sound that will make another person cry? Yes. It's mental. It's completely mental. It is mental. mental. Now, Jimmy, when you first you did float the idea. I did know that this was floating around in your brain that you wanted to try to find out where and why, more importantly, why you heard you're the voice in Greek. I've done a bit of research. Bree Steele, our, our producer, has put her super sleuthing hat on. It was actually recorded by a Greek man, a superstar by the name 
of Laurentis Macharitas. Now, unfortunately, Lavrentis, that's who you heard. You heard Lavrentis singing this song. Unfortunately, Lavrentis passed away in 2019. Oh. But James Matheson, Bree has found Lavrentis's bass player who toured with this man for 20 years, collaborated with him for 20 years, direct from Greece, Jimmy. Bullshit. Bullshit. No, 100%. <laughs> Okay, so he played bass with Lavrentis on this song live a squillion times. Hello. No way. <laughs> That's unreal. Akis. Hello. Good morning. Akis, welcome to the show. Our first international guest. And I mean, I know you're a big deal in Greece, but, you know, Osh is a big deal here. Oh, it's Jimmy. And, uh, you know, I was famous 10 years ago. So sometimes I use this expression and it's hyperbole, but no one is more excited about this than me. No one. Thank you very much. This is a very significant song for Greece too because uh, it was featured in uh, the first, let's say, big hit uh, album my main collaborator, Lavredis Mejeritsas, made back in '93. It was uh, one of his best published songs here in Greece, and it was uh, very much connected with uh, a lot of uh, the struggles that people were making, especially working class people here in Greece. Mm. So it's kind of the same here. Uh, it is very connected to people's struggles and a very well-known song. Do you remember how Leverentis came across you're the voice the very first time? We have talked about it. I was not present at the time because I started collaborating with Lavrentis in 1999. He was telling me the story because uh, the uh, lyricist of the song, the person that, uh, uh, let's say, made the Greek lyrics of the song, is uh, to a very long-time collaborator of Lavrentis and a very good friend of mine. And uh, Lavrentis always uh, liked and uh, listened to a lot of music from other countries. And uh, in his albums, he was always included uh, songs from, uh, let's say, one Italian artist or one French artist. And at uh, that time, he heard this song, he liked it. This album had a couple of other number one hits here in Greece. It was a very popular album and uh, he chose this song to open his concerts how different are the the lyrics in greek to what we know of the australian version my, my understanding is it's um the title is throw red into the night is that right can you talk us through how, how different the lyrics are in greek and how it spoke to the nation at that particular time although the lyrics are not like let's say, translated from English to, to Greek, uh, the central meaning uh, of the struggle uh, is quite similar because it talks about, uh, here in Greece, the color red is, uh, uh, let's say, uh, attached to people's struggles. The song talks about uh, a condition that 
uh, although it's kind of grime and uh, oppressive, uh, people's uh, people color it red. The people like go out at night and uh, paint the night red mm. to go again against everything that oppresses them and everything that tries to take their liberties away. What was happening in Greece at the time, 91, 92, that when this song came out, it had struck such a strong reaction? It was not uh, uh, a particular event that marked it. But the uh, truth is that uh, uh, Greece is a place that suffers quite often from oppression. And uh, this is some feeling that uh, we have all the time. So a song like that, it, it didn't need a particular event to get through to the people. Laverentis passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, do you think he would be proud and happy to know that the, the legacy of that song lives on? He sure would be, and he was all, all of the time that we were together. I remember that he very much insisted that we play the song. He had it always in his mind. He loved the energy that it was giving to people. I think that uh, if he was still here um, for all the years in the future, we would play that song. It wouldn't go out of her live play. When I watched the video of you playing it live, uh, they cut and you can see the crowd and just, Jimmy, it, it's it's the same as when we have it in Australia. The vases are the same when they're singing along. They're, they're just as into the, there's something about the chords, there's something about the cadences, there's something about the way that the the tensions of the melody resolve that just creates this structure of emotion in your body. There's this perfect amount of tension and release, and then you get to sing it out three or four times through the song, and it's it's great. It, it's a masterfully crafted song. Uh, he loved uh, the beginning with the bagpipes. He was very insisting for the uh, players to f- find a way to make the bagpipe sound well. Uh, we were opening the concert and he would like leave like five minutes of just bagpipe drones, like building <laughs> up the crowd. And uh, most of the times he would just go up front and we'll sing uh, the chorus with the people. And then he would enter to the main part of the song. And uh, people loved it all the time. It's a masterfully crafted song. Amazing. Well, it's, it has a, 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 an amazing place in Australian history and is an, a, an essential part of our culture. And I kind of love that it exists in a, in a similar way in, in Greece, a country which has so many fantastic ties with our own. So, um, Well, I guess yeah. Greeks uh, find the home in Australia too. That's why there are so <laughs> many of them there. So uh, it's... Uh, kind of like a, a second home country for us. <laughs> We're like Brazil with the Japanese. We're like the most amount of people who live outside of Greece live in Australia. <laughs> exactly. Like they live exactly. Here. 
The second biggest uh, town of Greece is Melbourne, I think. <laughs> it is. It is. It's absolutely true. What a great. It's joke. so wonderful to speak to you. Um, you've solved a, a, a long, long-standing mystery that has been stuck in my head for a long time. Akis, you're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys, for having me. Uh, I'm really glad. Have a good day. It was great, and I think it tells a kind of cool story that you know, you you, you sometimes hear it and like drunk drongos are singing it, but you and it, you forget how powerful the song is at a anthemic level. Like it mm. is actually it, at its heart, it's a protest song. It's about solidarity. It's about like let's join together. Let's not stand for this shit. You know. Yeah. And I love that that exists in Greece as well. I love that it exists in other parts of the world. Do you feel a little better now, Jim? Now you've Do you remember remember what you were trying to buy in that deli that day? Um I'm I'm sure it was olive oil <laughs> and booze. <laughs> what else do you need? We're on holiday in Santorini. Do I feel better? I mean, it's like one of those itches that has finally got scratched. I mean, like full disclosure, I googled it. I was able to, you know, find out who sung it, but that didn't fill in any of the blanks about why it got recorded or what value it had or what the song was about, you know. And so speaking to Akis was actually really amazing to sort of to sort of fill in the blanks and and join those dots. Isn't it amazing how what we were talking about with Ross and when you watch that video, it's the same. It's the same reaction that. Something about the chordal structure, something about the melody, something about the way the tension resolves every time you get to sing the whoa, whoa, whoa part. It's the same feeling. It doesn't matter which way you sing it. It doesn't matter if it's English or Greek or it's incredible, man. I hope people remember that. I hope people remember that next time they hear you or the voice, that it's not some just mindless pop track, not some sort of dumbed-down power ballad like... It has all the hallmarks of a, a, a classic power ballad, but it's about being together. It's about unity. That's kind of awesome. A song like that is yeah. our national anthem. Yeah. Because sometimes we forget, like, how awesome we can be to each other and we forget that the power exists in the people and we forget that we can rise up against inequality and oppression and discrimination. and. We could have some boneless track as our national song, you know. We, we could have Chumbawamba tub thumping. Yeah. But no, instead we got this magical protest song. Yeah. And it's pretty cool. And there's bagpipes because Farnham said it needs bagpipes. <laughs> This episode of Idle Australians was produced by Daryl Misson, research by Bree Steele, me and Jim did the talking parts. <laughs> if you want to email us, idleaustralians at gmail.com. See you next week. <laughs>